Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Hey friends, I'm so glad to be back with you guys. Um, I'm, I'm glad my good friend Bruce was here last week and just able to minister. Uh, you know, God is just doing some great things all over the world, isn't he? And it's just exciting to be alive at this time. Do you realize there are more people alive today than have ever lived in human history? And, and, and so, you know, when we talk about people coming to faith and, and uh, people being impacted by the kingdom, this is probably the most exciting time to live in the history of the world. And, uh, and you, you get to make an amazing difference in people's lives uh, the, the impact can be absolutely phenomenal, way out of proportion to anything we've seen in history. Uh, this year is, is the 500-year uh, uh, celebration of the Reformation. Uh, you know, and it's, it's interesting that, that sometimes truth can get hidden for a long time. Uh, and then somebody breaks out with just revelation, with light, with an idea and says, you know what, the way we've been doing it, we need to change something here. Uh, and, and I believe Reformation is continuing. Uh, you know, the Reformation, the Reformers never saw the church completely reformed. They called themselves Reformers because they understood it was an ongoing process. And, uh, you know, your life and my life is like that too. We, we're in a process of Reformation. It, it, you're, you know, when you give your life to Christ, when you put faith in Jesus, it, it doesn't all happen in a moment. Uh, yes, you're born again in a moment. Yes, you're forgiven in a moment. Yes, in a moment, you know, you suddenly go from death to life. Uh, all those things happen in a moment, but you becoming who God has ordained you to be is a process. It's a process of reformation. It's a process of change. And uh, I've discovered in my life that sometimes when God is working on me, sometimes I'm really happy with the change. Do you know what I mean? I'm really happy with like there's bits about my life I really don't like. I'm so glad God is changing that. But then there's other bits where God changes me and I really don't like the change. You know, it's like I, I, really, I really could live with that for the rest of my life. And God says, no, I don't want you to live with that. And I'm saying, well, well you know, I can live with it. And the Holy Spirit's saying, well, I can't. Uh, and, then, and then we go through change and it's almost like reluctant change. Have you ever been like that? And uh, wait till you get married, you know. <laughs> you guys are in for some fun. Wait till you get married, you know. It's like, because then the things that you thought about yourself, about yourself that you, you were tolerating and you thought was okay, suddenly there's someone else in your life who says, now, you need to change that. <laughs> now, I'm going to make a confession to you. Don't judge me, okay. I'm being vulnerable right now. Don't judge me. Now, I grew up with a brother. There was two of us, two boys. And we used to bath once a week. He was the oldest, so he got in the bath first. It was really terrible being the youngest. This was, you know, it was just the way it was in those days, bathing once a week. How many of you know when I got married, that habit had to change? <laughs> see, see, when you've grown up with a particular habit, a particular pattern, you never think there's another way of doing it. I remember one night I got into bed and my wife says, you are not staying here. 
you are going to have a shower right now. And at that time, I was a printer, and printers work with ink, and that stinks. That stuff really smells, let me tell you. I learned to, I learned to shower twice a day. I learned to shower in the mornings, I learned to shower in the evenings while I was a printer. And ever, ever since I've got married, I now shower every day. You say, well, that's normal. Yes, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that at that time because I, I grew up with a particular pattern, with a particular way of doing things. And every single one of us is like that. We grow up in life learning patterns, learning habits from our parents, learning ways of thinking even and behaving. And we learn those patterns and they become deeply ingrained in us. And really the Christian life is about learning new patterns, learning new ways of thinking that are more in line with the way God created us and with the way God wants us to enjoy life. And sometimes breaking those patterns of thinking is, is really difficult. And so uh, if you're somebody who's going through a bit of a struggle right now, my heart goes out to you because it, it's hard to break a pattern sometimes. But, but the truth is that if we trust God and we're prepared to go through the pain of change, we will find freedom, we will find blessing we will find growth. We will find enlargement. And, and listen, there is no such thing as change without pain. Hello? Have you noticed that yet? There is no such thing as change without pain. All change is painful. And so I want to, pray, I want to encourage you, embrace the pain. Let me read to you from Galatians chapter 5. Um, and uh, I'm going to read Paul's words here just a second. The jacket's coming off. This is funny, this place, because you've got this aircon system going up here, haven't you? That uh, it, it, it gets chilly down the front row and it gets really hot down the back. So if you're, if you're cold, sit at the back. If you're hot, sit at the front. Isn't that good? Don't change halfway through. Actually, it's more fun down the front. Hey, Galatians chapter 5, here it is. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We through this, we eagerly wait for the hope. Of, how, how many of you know what the hope of righteousness is? Let me just unpack this a little bit. Every single one of us who are born into the kingdom, who've said yes to Jesus, the Bible talks about a living hope. And the living hope is that one day we will be like him. As he is, so are we. We, we will be changed. We will be fully transformed. That's the hope of righteousness. In other words, right now we're on the journey. But... One day we will be completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then it says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, bond or free. All of that stuff is irrelevant in Jesus Christ. Here's what is relevant. But a faith working through love. That's going to be the title of my message this morning. A faith that works through love. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's possible that your faith can work through something else. <laughs> Have you ever thought about that? It's possible that your faith can work through something else. Now, the word work there is this lovely Greek word, energio, where we get the word energy. In other words, faith is always energized by something. Every single action that you do, every behavior is energized by something. And the difficulty is that many times it's the wrong thing energizing what we do. Now, if you, if you look out in the world, you can buy a car. You can buy an electric car, a Tesla. How many have driven one of those? Okay, a few of you here. A little bit of envy going on. 
And, uh, or, you can buy, or, or you can drive a petrol-driven car, like an Audi or a BMW or a Ferrari. I've done all three. Very nice. <laughs> Very nice. It's a different source of energy. It's a different sort of power. In other words, both are moving, both can be fast, but they're energized by different sources. And the problem is that sometimes in life, you can be operating in faith, but you're energized by the wrong thing. How is that possible? Well, I'll unpack this for you. You see, faith is all about what you're able to believe for. And there are many people in the world who have faith. They believe. And if you take the principles of God's word and you apply those principles and you believe them, they will begin to work for you. And that's okay. This is why in Matthew 7, Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do this in your name? They were operating in faith, but Jesus turns around and says, I never knew you. Why? Because they were never energized by love. The goal of your life is to be reduced to unselfish, godly love. That you actually become a loving person. I'm not talking about sentimental love here. I'm talking about unselfish, self-sacrificing love that puts the other person's destiny, future, hope, and blessing at the center of their action rather than themselves. Now, let me read to you another scripture. 1 Corinthians 13. I'll unpack this. I'll show you that what I'm saying is entirely biblical. Though I speak with tongues of men, 1 Corinthians 13, it's the passage on love. Listen to Paul. Though I speak with the tongues of men as of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now listen to this sentence. Here it is. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing there it is the apostle Paul an apostolic writer is teaching the church listen Corinth you are a church who knows how to operate by faith I've seen you do it you have gifts of healing you have gifts of faith you have words of knowledge you have words of wisdom you don't lack in 1 Corinthians 1 any spiritual gift But what you lack is the right energy source behind the exercise of those gifts. You exercise them out of self-promotion so that you can look good. That is not what God wants. You need a new energy source in your life. You need the love of God. See, it's so easy, isn't it, that, that we can be men and women of faith and we're required to be. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is a good thing. We have to believe in God's promises. We have to believe in God's word. We're meant to believe for a better future. We're meant to believe that things can be different. But the energy source behind that faith has got to be the love of God. In other words, if I'm going to exercise a spiritual gift, I've got to do it for your benefit, not for mine. That's got to be the motivation. And so often I find in my life that what God is dealing with me is is not my gifts, it's not my faith, it's what's my motivation. Why am I doing what I do? Who's at the center? Is it Jesus? Is it others? Or is it about me being self-promoting? 
<laughs> Paul says, I can bestow all my goods to feed the poor and give my body to be burned, but if I've not love, it profits me nothing. I want, you, I want you to notice how many times the word nothing is there. You know, I am nothing. It profits me nothing. Now listen, if I operate in faith, I could operate in the gift of healings and you get healed. But if I'm doing it because I want to look good and I want you to say, oh, he's a fantastic healer. If that's my basic motivation, you still benefit from the gift, but I don't. You'll still get healed, but it profits me nothing. Because my motivation in you getting healed was not to glorify God with the healing, but to say, wow, you need to line up, friends, because I am the bee's knees. <laughs> Who is it we're doing it for? And here's the thing about human selfishness. We've all got it. <laughs> have, you have you found out yet? We're all born with that thing that the New Testament calls the, the, the flesh, self. <clears throat> In John 13, verse 34, listen to Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By the way, he said this in the context of washing the disciples' feet. Nobody wanted to do that task. Nobody wanted to be... Uh, that humble. Nobody wanted to take on the servant role in that context, but Jesus did. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By all this will people know. It's, you think of all the things Jesus could have said. You know, by, by all the miracles, people will know. Or by the size of the church, people will know. But he's saying it's something about what energizes you and the quality of your relationships. That's what will, say, that's what will make people say, wow. And I, Come on, as a church, I, I think we've got to get back to something really, really simple. And that's loving the way Jesus loved. You know, sometimes loving the way Jesus loved means you confront you confront behavior that's not appropriate. You, become, you confront language that's not appropriate. You confront thought patterns that are self-destructive. You confront those things because you want the best for the other individual. That's the loving thing to do. The sentimental thing to do is say nothing. The sentimental thing to do is to just use the words, I love you, but do nothing and say nothing. Now, real love is always love in action. Love in action. <clears throat> I believe that some of the sources of, of uh, what energize our faith are, are listed in the Bible. Let me read to you Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 verse 15. Sorry guys, I forgot to get this to you earlier. But listen to Paul here in Philippians 1.15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And some also from goodwill. Now listen. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love. Wow. 
So here is the Apostle Paul. He's in prison. And there's a whole lot of preaching of Christ going on around him. And he says, you know what? I, I can discern there's, there's two motivations going on here. There's a whole group of people who are preaching about Jesus, but they're doing it out of selfish ambition. That's what he calls it here. He says the motivation, the energizing of their faith is not right. Selfish ambition, envy, strife. But some are doing out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? What am I going to do with those two motivations? In every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this way rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. In other words, Paul says, I don't care about their motivation. God will deal with them. Christ is preached. The effect and the impact is still the same. So he says, I'm going to rejoice in that. I'm going to rejoice in the results. I'm going to rejoice in the impact. But actually, those people need to deal with something. And you know, I read this as a young preacher, and I remember saying to God, oh God, don't let me end up one of those guys. Where I build something and I do something out of genuine faith, but deep in my heart there is a selfish ambition there. God, deal with my selfish ambition. I mean, you know, that's a really dangerous prayer. Hello? Just asking God to, just pray, you know, God, deal with my selfish ambition. I dare you. I double dare you. Watch what happens. Watch what happens. God will start to deal with your motivation. He'll start to deal with what's going on in you. I had a friend of mine I trained at the Bible College in Denmark. He was a young Pakistani uh, boy. He was in his early 20s. He went back to Pakistan. He planted over 100 churches. Has 20,000 people in his 100 churches. Uh, he, 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 uh, He did all this on his own. He started all on his own, just going to a village alone. Sharing in, a, in an Islamic village about Jesus. He was beaten up the first time he went there. They kicked him out of the village. They gave him a black eye. Uh, he, he had to walk 10 kilometers home. And, uh, you know, he thought to himself, well, I'm not doing that again. And when they kicked him out of the village, they said, your Jesus doesn't do anything for us. He doesn't even feed us. And he, and, he, and he was praying and said, Lord, where should I go now? And the Lord said, go back. He said, Lord, I got beaten up last time I was there. He said, that's okay. Go back, but this time take food. So he carried 10 kilometers. He carried a five-liter can of, of oil and rice, olive oil. He walked 10 kilometers back to the village. One of the elders in the village saw him coming. He said, what are you doing here? We're going to beat you again. He said, my Jesus sent me to feed you. The man was so shocked, he welcomed him into his house. He led one of the chief elders of the village to the Lord. He led his wife to the Lord. The whole village came to faith, planted a church. So over 10 years, he planted 100 churches, 20,000 people. Had an amazing impact. A denomination approached him and said this to him. A denomination you would know if I was to name it. And they said, we will buy your house and give you a salary for life if you will give us your 100 churches. You think, does that really go on? Does that really happen? Doesn't that sound like the world of politics? Doesn't that sound like the world of business? Doesn't that sound like the world that's other than the kingdom of God? 
And he could have made a decision that would have advanced his family and secured his future, but would not have been true to his calling. So he did the unselfish thing and said, no, thank you. No, thank you. But if you want me to help you sort out your denomination, I'm happy to serve you. You see, we can rejoice that Christ has preached. It, in, in a way, it doesn't matter. In a way, it doesn't matter. But it matters to God and it, and it matters to you and me because I can do so many things in life and it still profits me nothing. It'll profit you, but it won't profit me. And, and I don't know about you, but I, I want to win. I, I want you to win, but I want to win too. And Paul says, I want to come to the end of my life where I can say, I've run the race, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. And, and the only way you can do that is if you're willing to sort out this thing called self-righteousness. You see, I think one of the major things that motivates a lot of people is pride. You know, pride is most often expressed by self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is most often expressed by people who think they're right. The moment you think you're right and you're always right and other people are wrong. I've met husbands like this. They're always right. We've got a guy in our church. He's just, his family's in a complete mess. And he's, he hasn't worked for 10 years because he feels like he's called. So he makes his wife work and she's completely stressed out trying to keep the family. I said to him, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, if you don't provide your own house, you're worse than an unbeliever and you've denied the faith. That's what the word of God says. Too tough? I was trying to, I was trying to be loving by confronting him because he's, he's hurting his family. But he's, he's got this thing, I'm called. I said, well, if you're called, God will provide for you. But there's no provision. So stop, stop living in a fantasy world and get a job. Hello? And so often, you know, pride says, no, I'm right. No, 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 I'm called. No, no, I'm this and I'm that. You know, it's pride. It's pride. We've got to get rid of that stuff. We've got to have that broken in our lives and just say, and face reality. You know, there's different times in my life where I remember um, I, I was in ministry for eight years as a senior pastor. So from the age of 23, I was associate pastor for seven years. Then I was ordained at 30. And for eight years, I was a senior pastor of a church. I was 38. And then I came out of leadership. And, uh, you know, people said to me, what are you, you going to do? And I said, well, I really don't know, but, but I'm going to provide for my family. So I got a, li- a really humble job as a swimming teacher. It was a really hum- I mean, senior pastor, swimming teacher. The salary drop was significant, let me tell you. Really significant. They don't pay swimming teachers a lot of money. But you know what I did? I reconnected with all my kids. Because I took them swimming and taught them to swim. I spent loads of time, especially with two of my kids, who became phenomenal swimmers, competitive swimmers. And I, did, I just was a swimming teacher for, for about a year. And then I got a job with a company a management development company, and and basically I became, have you heard of NVQs here, National Vocational Qualifications? Do you have that? Okay. But I was an NVQ assessor. Worked for a management development company. And then during that time, I did a master's degree in leadership. And it was was a tough season in our lives as a family because I wanted to provide for my family, but I had to choose just to do humble things, just to do humble things to provide. And just to embrace it. 
And uh, it was really weird. Like, uh, I graduated at 40. Can you believe that? You know, <laughs> it's like crazy. Finally, finally qualified to do something at 40, you know, because people just, they didn't see me that way. And there was a season of, of working for that company where when I qualified, boy, did I start getting blessed. They used to hire me out for £1,000 a day. I'm talking back in, in 1996. That, that was a lot of money in those days because I was, I was good at what I did. I was good at working with teams and directors and senior managers. And now I had this very prestigious qualification after my name. So people, I, I was no different, really. But it just made a difference. And then we really started getting blessed as a family. And I was able to renew the heating in our house and the electrics in our house and the furniture in our house and got the new car and all of that stuff. But listen, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know some Christians who only know how to abound. It's like take away their favorite car and they cry for a week. It's like, oh, that's my toy. Take away their favorite watch and they wouldn't know what to do. Take away their favorite house and they'd feel like they're cursed. Listen, you've you got to know both. You've got to know how to be abased and you've got to know how to abound. You've you, you got to know how to live on baked beans on toast. I did that for a while. You know, there was a period in the UK where a very famous organization called Tesco's they're, they're, they're massive in the UK. It's a supermarket chain. And they brought out a series of products for families who are very poor. And the products, everybody could tell the poor families because all the tins had just black, had blue and white stripes around the tins. And all it said were things like beans or spaghetti. And you could buy bread for like five cents. It was ridiculous how cheap everything was. I remember going during this period when we were in, I was the swimming teacher and life was being abased, I'm telling you. I mean, it was right down there. I remember filling up a trolley with all these cans. It was like everyone, everyone in the supermarket goes, yeah, they're the poor people. They're the, poor, they're the people who've got nothing. Just blue and white striped cans, loads of beans, loads of spaghetti, loads of bread. And going to the counter and it's like massive, massive filled trolley and the lady looked at me and said that'll be five bucks <laughs> this is fantastic thank you Jesus you made a way now, now listen you know I've driven a car where every time I opened the front door the door fell off I've driven a car like that but I've driven an Audi 8 as well I've had brand new cars I've had both and here's the thing. Do I like abounding? Absolutely. Absolutely. We should all abound. But you only appreciate the abounding if you've lived in the place of being abased. It's because I had nothing, I appreciate everything I have. And here's the thing. Once you have good things, they don't own you in the same way as they do if you've never been without it. When I was 38, we sold our house and gave all the money to the church. Hello? People talk about giving. Yeah, okay, let's talk about giving. I'm happy to talk about giving. Do you know what I'm saying here? I'm not saying you all have to do that. I'm saying I've been on a journey where God broke me and 
release me from the things that could control me and own me. Do you get it? It was a journey. It was a journey. I, I did at 38 what I couldn't do at 28. Do you get that? It was a journey of faith, but it was also a journey of growing in love. What was my source for my faith? And I want to say to us as church, come on, friends. I, I, I know this is a church filled with faith. I know that. I, I've seen that. I've seen what you've accomplished. I've seen the way you bring energy to things. I, I see the way you bring excitement to things. Come on, this is a church filled with faith. I want to encourage you, make sure that your faith is energized by the right thing. Make sure it's energized by the right thing. Only you have control over that. See, Paul says here that some do it out of selfish ambition. Come on, who, who do you want to see promoted? Who do, who do you want to see succeed? Listen, there's nothing wrong with you wanting to succeed in life, but don't ever do it at the expense of other people. Do it through serving other people. Jesus said, if you want to become great in my kingdom, become the servant of all. Doesn't that challenge you down to your toes? I hear so many husbands who say, you know, I'm the head of the home. I've got this guy in my church I told you about. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the head of the home. I have to be the head. And I said, well, what do you think that means? He said, it means I call the shots. I said, that's not what headship's about. Headship means that you have authority to lead your family into their destiny through serving them. That's what headship's about. Jesus is head of the church. He's head over all things to the church, which is his body. He's the head of the body. I don't do, you know, when I'm talking to my body, I don't say unkind things to my body. You know, you're stupid, come on. Get yourself together. I, I say to my body, hey body, we need to watch it here. Let's go do some exercise. My body sometimes rebels and says, no, I want to lie in longer. And the head says, I'm taking authority over that thought. <laughs> we lead the body into health. We lead the body into, into its destiny, into its core. We lead, we lead in that way. We don't, we, we don't punish our body. We're not Catholics in that sense where we, you know, we punish ourselves. If you're a Catholic here, I don't mean to offend you. My mother's Italian. She died a Catholic, loving Jesus. But I'm, there's this religious notion that somehow we have to punish ourselves in order to be spiritual. That's not what it's about. It's about loving. It's about serving. It's about giving unselfishly. That's what it's all about. Thank you for the clap. I appreciate that one person. It was worth the clap. Circumcision and uncircumcision avails, doesn't avail anything. You know, you can focus on the outside. And it doesn't avail anything. It's what's on the inside. It's what's driving you. Come on, what's energizing you? Faith working through love. And here's what I've discovered. That my capacity for love depends on my capacity to embrace the next step that God has for my life. The next step that God... You see, because God will often lead you in a way where you end up doing a whole series of very unselfish things. 
And God asks you to do that. He invites you to do that, but he never demands that you do it. God is so wonderful in that way. God, you know, if it's, if it's genuine love, it can't be a demand. Because the price of love is freedom. And, and God wanted to have a whole group of people who loved him for who he was, not because he programmed them to love him. So the price of love is freedom. In other words, you get the opportunity to say no if you want to. You don't have to surrender to the love of God. You don't have to say yes to the love of God. You can go your own way in life. You can choose to be your own boss. You can end up singing, I did it my way. That could be the theme tune of your life. But at the end of the day, you'll, you'll never discover the wonderful love of God in your heart. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. I, I find that verse very challenging because it, if you want the love of God shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit, you have to go through a process. And here's the process, Romans chapter 5. Verse 1, therefore being justified by faith, we had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, now listen to this, but we glory in tribulations. I hate that verse. I mean, my flesh hates it. We, we glory in problems, in troubles. We glory in tribulations. Really? Not only that, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Have you noticed that? That when there's resistance in your life, it produces grunt, perseverance. And perseverance produces character. Have you noticed that in process of time, you become a more determined individual if you're, pu if you're pushed through? And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. So God wants to give you a hope in your heart that you'll never be disappointed with. Because the hope that comes from him always fulfills what it says. You know, you and I, we let one another down. Sometimes we're hoping for something, it doesn't happen. But the hope God gives you is always fulfilled. So, so look at the process here. The Holy Spirit is poured out in our hearts. You can't have the Holy Spirit without hope. You can't have hope without character. You can't have character without perseverance. And you can't have perseverance without tribulation. So every time you ask God, God, I want more of your love in my life. Guess what you're asking for? See, I, see, I, I know people who think this is how it happens. They think, God, I want more of your love. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. It's coming, it's coming. Yeah, I feel it. Oh. Wouldn't it be great if it was like that? All those who want to be filled with the love of God, just come down the front, we can lay hands on you. Yeah. There you go, there you go, there you go. Wouldn't that be fantastic? I want that. That would be great. Pain-free love. But the love that the Holy Spirit pours out into our hearts, he has to prepare our hearts to receive his love. And the only way he can prepare our hearts to receive his love is if a bit of tribulation comes because tribulation unsettles you. Tribulation makes you look to God. 
Tribulation makes you examine what you're doing in life. Tribulation makes you look at your situation and say, hey, I wonder what's going on here. And tribulation then makes you ask questions. And as you're asking the questions, you have to make decisions. What am I going to give up on? What am I going to persevere with? And you produce this persevering thing in your life. And suddenly you find your character is being developed. Your character is being changed. You're actually becoming more like Jesus. Your faith is starting to work by this kind of love that he wants in your heart. It's producing hope where you've got expectation now about the future. And as that hope is there and you have that expectation, you find more of the love of God is coming into your life. And it's like a cycle that goes over and over. And God is reducing you to his amazing, unconditional love. And people will notice it. I think the greatest challenge for the church today is to live unselfishly. To live unselfishly where we make decisions and choices in life with the other person's interest at heart. You listen, I'm here. I'm away from my church for five months. I'm away from my wife right now for the next six weeks. Do you, do you think that was a selfish decision? I want you to know we made that choice together as a couple and you were in the center of it. Our love for this church, our love for this leadership, our love for the kingdom of God. We said, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. I'm not here boasting. I'm just saying that's what we did. And I'm here to serve you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to encourage you. And my prayer is that through my obedience, something is going to be released in your life. Something's going to be released into this situation. Just through that simple obedience. And you know what? I'm not just trusting for this church. I'm trusting for my church back home as well. Because the whole group of people said, we really miss you. You already gone three weeks and we missed you. I said, thank you. Thank you that you missed me. Keep praying for me. Because I feel this is the next phase and I, I don't really understand why, but I'm, I feel like we're walking in obedience. And so my church in London is being stretched right now. And, and I carry two churches in my heart right now. I actually carry a lot more because I carry the church in Rome and a few other places around the world. But right now, these are the two most important churches that I'm carrying in my heart. And the only reason I have capacity to do that is because God has created that capacity in me. Do you get that? And there are people here today. I want to say to you, you have amazing potential. Amazing potential. Well, I want to encourage you. Listen, when somebody challenges you and saying, hey, what, why are you doing that? And why are you doing it like that? If somebody who's close to you, who loves you, who cares for you, who knows they have your best interest at heart, if they challenge you, maybe God is trying to get your attention. Maybe God is trying to say to you, you know what? You're being energized by the wrong thing right now. You need to change the source of what is motivating you to do this. Your faith is good and I honor your faith but your energy source needs to shift. There needs to be less of you and more of me. I think that's why John the Baptist said he must increase. You see, everyone was worried about John's ministry. Hey, Jesus is baptizing now. Jesus has got your disciples. If you think about it, Jesus stole everything from John the Baptist. Seriously. First of all, he stole his message. It says Jesus came preaching 
Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He stole that from John. John was the first one to preach that message, not Jesus. And then the disciples in John chapter 1, John's disciples left John and started following Jesus. So he, he stole his message and then he stole his disciples. And then Jesus got his disciples to start baptizing people. So he stole John's message, he stole his disciples and he stole his ministry. But here's the thing. When something comes from heaven and not from a man, you can never steal it. Because it's from heaven, it's not yours in the first place. The ministry wasn't John's, it was from heaven. The way his disciples weren't his, they were the Lord's. The, everything he did about his life, his message came from heaven, it didn't come from him. Because it came from heaven, it was not something that could be stolen, it could be imparted and shared, and Jesus received it from him and took it and continued it. And when everyone got upset for John the Baptist, John said, it doesn't matter. He must increase and I must decrease. I've had my season. I've had my time. I've fulfilled my ministry. Now Jesus, I've made a way. I've prepared the way. Now it's okay. You see, when I finish, I want to be able to say these words. I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I want to get to the end. And when other people start doing things more than me and better than me, and people say, oh, Peter, what about your ministry? That was your church in London. You planted that church. You grew that church to 700. And now they don't really need you. I want to be able to say, let them increase. It doesn't matter if I decrease because it isn't about me. It's about God's kingdom. It isn't about what I want. It's about what he wants. It isn't about my glory. It's about to Him be the glory. You can only do that when the love of God is in your heart. Because when the love of God is in your heart, you know that whether you're on a platform or whether you're not, you're loved. You're special. You're chosen. You're important. You know, don't need the accolades of people to make you feel better about yourself. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.